Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf kaf vav, page 26. 26, of course, begins with a Mishnah that really begins on page 25. That really, yeah, the Mishnah begins on page 25, so I'm going to start there. It's the very bottom of uh, 25, kaf hey, I'm a bet. B'nei ha'ir, we're, oh, also, we're in a new parak. This is parak Dalid, uh, the fourth chapter and the topics are even moving further afield from Megillah, from Purim, and so on. But it's still congregational um, congregational issues, communal issues, as you'll see right here. B'nei ha'ir, shemachru chova shel ir, lokhin b'damav beit ha'kneset. So if you have people who live in a town, and they sell the town square. Now, what it means to sell a town square, I think, is a little bit complicated, but presumably is a matter of what it's used for, right? And that town square was, let's assume, it was at some point used for things like tefillah, like for a public prayer, and other kinds of, like I say, communal issues. Um, And now you want to go and sell that property. The question is, what can you use it, what can you sell it for that it's going to be at a higher level of sanctity than the same, let's say, public praying that had gone on there before. So if you take that same money and you then purchase with it, and you go and you purchase purchase a shul from the sale of the town square, then you've done the right thing, right? Meaning you're taking that money and making it um, buy something that's a greater level of sanctity. What if you were selling a shul? Well, if you sell a shul, then you could take that same money and go and buy an Aaron Kodesh. Now, this is a lot smaller than a shul. Where you're going to put it is a good question. But the idea is that the the, the teva, the Aaron Kodesh that holds the Sefer Torah, has a higher level of sanctity than the physical structure that is the shul. Teva, what if you're selling a, an Aaron Kodesh? Lokhin mitpachot, mitpachot, farim, svarim, lokhin Torah. So we've got this, as I say, this ever-increasing level. You're supposed to take that the same funds and buy something that has a greater level of sanctity. So if you sell your teva, if you sell the Aaron Kodesh, you could buy the parochet, the, the cloths that you wrap the Sefer Torah with. And if you sell those cloths, you can then buy the scrolls that count for Nevi'im and Ketuvin, like for the Haftorahs. Um, I think it's very unusual to see uh, Haftorah written in the book of Anovi as a scroll. It's like it's like a it looks like a little Sefer Torah, but it's not. Um, and Svarim, and if you sell those, meaning if you sell those scrolls of the prophets or the writings, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, then Lokhin Torah. Then you take that money and you purchase a Torah scroll, meaning that you have now come to the pinnacle of the level of sanctity of anything that we can do. Aval. What happens if you sell a Sefer Torah? Meaning there's nothing higher than that that you could purchase, right? So the Mishnah here is very clear. You can't then turn around and purchase, let's say, Haftorah scrolls from that. Meaning it goes all the way back through this the same way that the list began with beginning from the street and then you would buy a shul and from a shul to the our own and so on, it goes all the way back down and says, you if you sell any one of the things that had the greater level of sanctity, you cannot then purchase the thing that has the lesser level of sanctity. So the mission goes on to say, and also any surplus funds, meaning what if you're selling sacred items and you end up purchasing something that is of greater sanctity, but you have some money left over. 
right? Let's say you sell the whole building of your Beit Knesset and now you're going to buy the Aaron Kodesh. It's reasonable to think that your, that the full building will cost more than the Aaron Kodesh itself, right? And then the question is, what can you do with those surplus funds? And the answer is not so much. And it's a really challenging, I think in a, on a practical level, it, it becomes a really challenging um, question of how you handle, I would say, how do you handle something that is sanctified, that has this level of sanctity in a fiscally responsible kind of way? I don't think it's so simple. Right. And it's also like sort of communal property. Um, I'm going to move down to an interesting discussion that comes out of this, which has to do with the Kedusha of Yerushalayim. And um, it starts off with, there's a statement of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, um, who basically gives a teaching of Rabbi Yonatan, where they taught that uh, this statement about if they sold a Beit Knesset, that they can purchase an Aron, this was true only to a synagogue, a, a Beit Knesset of a village, which is basically owned by everybody in the village. But when it comes to a, a big Knesset of a city, since people come from all over the world, right, to, to, to pray there, to daven there, it's basically not owned by the residents of the city, but it's sort of more owned by the public at large. So in other words, the idea, what, what, what Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani is saying is, the village synagogue is actually owned by the people in the villages, right? And again, because we're talking about these were small numbers. The village could have had a few hundred people. But a, but a big Knesset of a big city sort of just owned by the people at large. It's owned by the general community. And therefore, that's why you can't actually, you, you can't sell it at all. Um, and, you know, so the Ravashi comes on Ravashi, Hi, Beikanisha de Mata Marsai, that this was true of the, uh, that this, the Beit Knesset of Mata Marsai, Afal Gav de Male Atu, even though people came from all over the world, Right, but they came really to see Ravashi. They came to see Ravashi, so therefore he was like, "If I wish, I could sell it." In a way, he's saying, "I own the Beit Knesset," because the reason why it was put on the map is to come see me. So that's sort of interesting. And now the Gemara brings a very interesting brisa. Right, I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. Masa be Beit Knesset shall Torsim Shayabi Yerushalayim. Okay, so Rabbi Yehuda told the story that there was a shul, a Beit Knesset of bronze workers that was in Yerushalayim, and they sold it to Rabbi Eliezer, and he used it for all of his needs. And so then the Gemara basically says, right, but isn't this shul, this Beit Knesset of Yerushalayim considered to be Beit Knesset of a, of a city, and therefore you shouldn't be allowed to sell it. Right. And so they say, no, this was like a very small Beit Knesset, really was owned by the bronze workers, and therefore they were allowed to sell it. Now they go on with another issue, Metibe, another objection from a Brisa. So here, the, the, this Pasuk is talking about leprosy of houses. Okay. We know that you could have leprosy on clothing, leprosy on a body. But you can also have leprosy of a house. And so this Pasuk in Vayikra, chapter 14, verse 34, basically says that it's talking about this plague of leprosy would be in a house of the land of your possession. Ahusotechem, right? Your possession. Ahusotechem mitame benegaim, right? So your possession means it has to be sort of a privately owned house, can become tame with leprosy. The Ain Yerushalayim mitame benegaim. But uh, something in Yerushalayim cannot be, 
right? Because the idea is, is that it's not it's collectively owned by all Jewish people. It's not owned by anybody. We're not getting into the political context of this, obviously, but right. But it's saying it's owned by all the Jewish people. Um, and so therefore this would sort of disagree with the previous story, right? About the uh, bronze, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, about this particular bronze worker shul, because this would basically be saying no, Yerushalayim is owned by everybody, right? It's 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 not. It doesn't. No one owns it. So how could you could how could you sell anything there? And the reason we know this is because of this particular teaching that it's not considered to be part of your possession. I'm a Rabbi Yehuda Anilo Shamati Elamakom Mekadesh Bilban. So Rabbi Yehuda says I only heard this about the temple site itself. Only that is sort of owned by all the Jewish people, not all of Yerushalayim. And so then it goes on to say, So then the Gemara says, based on Rabbi Yehuda's statement, and if that it's only the Beit HaMikdash, only the temple site that can become, that cannot become, you know, rich, would never give the Saras of Negaim in a house, right? But, but it basically is implying that, you know, a Beit Knesset or a Beit Midrash, synagogues and, and, and study halls, in Yerushalayim can become ritually impure. So am I, right? Why should this be, right? If they're really owned by the city. In other words, right? According to Rabbi Yehuda. Right? It's owned by the city. Am I, am a Rabbi Yehuda, right? So maybe really what the Brisa should be saying is, is right? I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. I heard this distinction only about holy sites. And in other words, this would include the Beit Amidash, any Batek, uh, any Beit Knesset, and a Beit Midrash. So any holy site, this would be true of in Yerushalayim. And so now they get into a very interesting machlokas. But my kama plige, right? What is the Tanakama of that brisa? And Rabbi Huda actually disagreed about Tanakama savar lo Yerushalayim l'shvatim. So the Tanakama holds that actually Yerushalayim was not given to any of the shvatim. It was sort of it was like Washington D.C wasn't owned by anybody. It's not part of anything. Rabbi Yehuda holds it was actually given to the Shvatim. And then the Gemara goes on to say, that actually we can see this machlokas of the different Tanayim. The Tanya, right? So the one who holds that, that Yerushalayim was actually right? Right? And so this price basically describes part of Yerushalayim was given to Yehuda, and it lists out here which part was given to Yehuda, I'm skipping a little bit here. And part of it was given to Binyamin. And then it describes that there was this one strip that went from the part of Yehuda into the part of Binyamin. And it bothered you. It bothered Binyamin. Binyamin didn't like it. So therefore, Binyamin actually became right? Binyamin actually becomes the part that gets the, the actual because it actually had the Kaddish Kadoshim, because it had this one part that it had to share with that Yehuda had. The high Tana Sabar Lo Nichlachai Yerushalayim Lishvatim. Right now, here's the Tanaitic opinion that Yerushalayim was not given to the tribes. The Tanya, we learned at Abraisa, Ein Maskirim Batim Yerushalayim. We don't rent out houses in Yerushalayim. Mipanesha Ein Shalahem, because they're not owned to anybody. They don't belong to the person who actually sort of lives in them. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, um, Rabbi Eliezer Ratzadok says, Aflo mitot, even the beds can't be rented out. Lefichach a rogue kodshim, 
right? Therefore, the hides of the renters, right? Anybody who does rent out, right? Instead of, or is at an innkeeper's house, right? Instead of paying, you sort of pay them in hides, right? It's because the innkeepers are considered to sort of be taking them by force. They're not really allowed to sort of demand a payment. So very interesting, Machlokas, what's really the status of Yerushalayim? Do we say Yerushalayim is owned by or has is part of Yuda and Benjamin? Or do we say that sort of Yerushalayim is this non-owned city altogether and is sort of owned collectively by all the Jewish people? Now, I would guess most people sort of like that latter opinion better, right? Um, that the idea that sort of two of the Shvatim would have that privilege, maybe you wouldn't like as much, but it's, it's an interesting Machlokas that we have here. And it's interesting also. I feel like the conversation that we're not going to be able to have today on in learning the DAF is really all about sanctity of place, right? And if we're talking about, if we if the Mishnah begins talking about sanctity of, let's say, the square and then the shul and so on, and you're talking here, the Gemara goes on to talk about the sanctity of a city, and I understand Yerushalayim, but then also the, the physical structures within that city. I feel like there's, so much more to unpack that I can't even begin to think about it while in the throes of preparing the daf. On the other hand, I think like, I just need to name this, that this is, this is a really important discussion, right? Like the same way that, you know, uh, Avram Yoshua Heschel, is that his name? Heschel write, wrote this very famous book about Shabbos, right? It's called the Sabbath. And it talks about the sanctity of time. This is very much about the sanctity of place. And there have been books written about Kedusha Makom also, but I'm just saying like this, this is, this yeah, is the I, raw material. I, I think the theme of this big theme of this tab is could you shot my home, like the idea of sanctity of space. Okay, so I just want to quickly come to the uh on bet. We've got a, a bit of a narrative. Rami Bar Abba Havaka Bane Baknista. So Rami Bar Abba was building a shul. Uh Hava Hahikanista Atika Hava Baila Mistere La Atuye Livne Bekishure Mina. So what happens? There was another shul. There's this old synagogue that he wanted to knock down and take the bricks and the beams from that shul and bring them to his new place where he's going to make a new synagogue, right? And he was going to bring it bring it into the new location. So he had to figure out, does this work with what Rav Chista said? What did Rav Chista say? Is that you should not knock down a shul until you build another shul. Now, this is a conundrum for Rami Bar Abba because what he wants to do is use the one the the physical elements of the first shul to build the second shul. So how how can he get to them, right? If he can't knock them down until he's already built the other shul, then he's got a bit of a problem. Hata, um, so he's it goes on. The Gemara goes on. Hatam mishum pshuta, right? The concern meaning. Rami Bar Abba, as he thinks about it, he decides that Rav Chista's whole concern is really about negligence. Meaning, if you get all caught up in building a new, exciting shul, then you, um, yeah, I'm sorry, if you get all, you want to knock down the first shul before you build the second shul, you might actually then end up never coming to build the first, the, to build the second one, right? Because you knock it down and then you get busy with other things, whatever. But in this case, he says, Ki hai gavna mai. What's the, what's the, what does he think he needs to do here? So he feels like, well, you know, this is a legitimate question here because he's not trying to be negligent with regard to rebuilding. He wants to exactly build from the same supplies. 
So he goes to ask a Shiloh, which I think is an interesting thing. We don't usually see this where, you know, different, I don't know, there's a hierarchy in Chazal, right? So he comes to Rav Papa, he asks, what does he think? And Rav Papa says, no, you can't do it. And then he asks Rav Huna, and Rav Huna says, you can't do it. And then Amarava, and this is the construction of the daf, it's not really uh, quite the same, everybody at the same place at the same time. Amarava, Rava's position is that if what you're doing is exchanging that shul or perhaps the building, the building itself or the sale, the money of the sale from selling the building, and what you're doing with it is taking it for a different building, that, you know, that apparently, according to Rava, would be okay. Ogura o mashkuna asur. But if what you're doing is renting it out or you want to mortgage it, meaning so then you're going to use that money for something else, for some other purpose, not for the shul purpose, that's where he prohibited. My Tama, because he says, you know, altogether he's gonna he's gonna rest the decision on the the sanctity of the place to make sure that it can retain that sacred state. So if you rent out your shul to be a not shul, meaning anything else, right? A bowling hall, you know, it doesn't matter the bowling alley, then then it's not retaining that sacred space. It's not retaining the sanctity. But if what you're doing is swapping one sanctified place for another sanctified place, meaning to, to bring the sanctity, so to speak, over to the second place, then you don't have the concern that you're kind of giving up on the on the there's no real reduction in the world of that degree of sanctity. The place kind of moves over, as it were, or the sanctity of the place moves over to the new place. It's very hard to talk about this, right? Because we don't, I don't have the vocabulary for, for the physical transfer of sanctity. But it seems to be that that's a much more acceptable position. And then the Gemara goes on to talk about how that's also true if you're talking about the bricks of a shul, which goes back to answer Rami Bar Abba, because he wanted the beams and so on. Right, that there are times where if you have bricks that they were always part of a shul, and then you're going to put them into a new shul, they still count as bricks of a shul, and that's acceptable. So this is interesting to me because we just came off a discussion about kedushat makom, like sanctity of space, and this is basically saying that even the individual components that, when built together, create the space, like the brick itself could have kedusha, right? But it's only significant sort of when it's put all together to make that space or does it have significance even when it's taken out of that space that it creates this might be way too philosophical but well i know but i i think the bottom line is that the the caution is don't use it for something that doesn't have that same level of sanctity right you can't take that brick from the shul and use it for your you know i don't know new fireplace in your house like it might be pretty, but it doesn't matter. Like you're supposed to treat it with the same level of holiness that it's that it's already been imbued with. Um, it is interesting to me that moving it from its place does not reduce that level of kedusha. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.